Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is the 22nd in episode of our podcast. And it's with me, Mikas Baird Lundblad. And, and with me, Richard Allen. So one of the things that we haven't talked a lot about is the pandemic. And we haven't talked about the pandemic because the pandemic doesn't obviously lead you to think about tech policy except for misinformation. We we did discuss it when we talked about the code of conduct for, for misinformation. But, but I, I think there are other impacts of the pandemic that are also interesting. And you have mentioned and thought some about what the pandemic means for the workplace, for you know our work environment, the, the daily relationship we have with work. What, what do you think is happening there? Yeah, I think what's, what's happened is that um, something that was relatively normal for people like you and I, uh, but you and I being a very, very small minority of the population, that's people who work in, in global tech companies, that the, what was sort of normal for us in terms of our workplace has actually now become normal for a much wider group of people. And that's raising all sorts of questions. So, so uh, when I talk about what that means, that means, you, you know, you're working from anywhere with a group of people who could be anywhere. And importantly, you, you may be asked to join in with things at any time. Um, and typically, you're doing that using I mean, video conferencing has become the kind of primary means. Uh, and I think that's been actually, again, the norm. I, I certainly, my life over the last, you know, five or six years was to be on video conferencing calls five or six hours a day. And that was like perfectly normal with people in uh, Europe, people in the United States and so on. And so that, that sort of uh, abnormal normality, shall we say, that normality for a very small subset of people working for very leading edge global tech companies now it's sort of spread across the workplace um, and it's raising questions, I say, about uh, all sorts of things, ranging everything from from kind of uh, the extent to which workplace employers can um, surveil you, can can see what you're doing online, uh, through to how you use those tools for purposes other than strictly your work purposes, and then very importantly through to what are your rights as an employee, um, to, to what can your employer demand of you in this new workplace, and should those demands be different from the old demands in a, a more conventional or, or traditional workplace setting. It's interesting because this is this is a part of the labor contract that we haven't really negotiated because, as you say, it's a very small subset who has been on video conferences all the time and also enjoyed the luxury of that extra time zone at the end of your usual yes. workday where you got an extra workday because all of the people in in California woke up. I think, I think that the the reality is that that this is is unnegotiated ground and and. It's certainly something that people have strong feelings about because this idea that you should always be accessible, that you should be 24-7 available to your employer is it sort of flies in the face of the increased focus on self-realization, on family, on the distinct personal space and personal sphere vis-a-vis -vis work. I mean, there's we've been talking about work-life balance for for the longest time now, and it's it's a fraught concept. There are a lot of problems with it, but but it seems as if that work-life balance piece is just waiting to become an issue in tech policy, doesn't it? It does, and I don't know about you, but we would do these regular surveys uh, when I used to work at Facebook on work-life balance, and and the question, you know, is always answered that it's pretty disastrous. But as a qualifier, it, it didn't used to come up as the thing that was most important to people. 
So even though they recognized it was terrible, it was most important. And I think, again, let's be really entirely candid. People who are in very well-paid, very interesting jobs tend, you know, even though they don't like the work-life balance, they tend not to see it as disastrous. People who are in much less well-paid jobs where it's more onerous, where, where, you know, the, the work is not fun. It's just hard daily grind. I think for them, it's a much, much bigger deal. So we, again, we should calibrate it that, um, uh, you know, work-life balance say, can be a complaint that isn't uh, if I say, sort of critical or fatal to your enjoyment of a job, or it can be something that, I say, really, really grinds and gets you down. Um, having said all that, even for people who are saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm well-paid, I'm interested in my job, it's not, not fatal – having the wrong work-life balance over time, I think, can be very detrimental. And I'd say that personally, it was something I felt, even though I loved my job and I was really interested, really well rewarded, you know, there comes a certain point at which you are um, damaging relationships and and you're just exhausted. Um, So there's sort of classic sort of burnout syndrome that people talk about. But but that's what it does come down to. It's it's, um, both, you know, literally how much time is your job absorbing, (laughs) And then yeah. how do how do you feel about that amount of time uh, and how you feel about it is going to vary according to how well you're compensated and how interesting the work is to you personally. And I want to make another point here that I think is important because we 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 have to approach this from several different angles. And I think you're right that the, the in the modern organization, uh, when you have a job, it's harder and harder to keep up work life balance. But but there's a difference here because what's happening is that there are a lot of people in the labor market who don't necessarily have a job. They don't have that bundle of social status or retirement or benefits uh, because their work is uh, atomized. It's divided up into labor that's uh, on demand. So it's sometimes we refer to it as a gig economy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there it seems even harder to think about what work-life balance means because, because there it's these isolated components of work that you have to grab if you if you want to make money and so there's another really interesting push now where labor law and tech policy are are converging uh where there are questions being asked whether or not these people who are on-demand gig workers should also be enshrined in the architecture that we developed over hundreds of years for jobs between trade unions and employers associations etc so it there, there seems to be another Another angle in which tech policy is is also uh, affecting the very nature of of jobs and sort of splintering them, fragmenting them into the work components that usually are bundled, and that that creates an entirely different set of problems, doesn't it? It does, and I think that's part of um, something that tech companies like. So it's not ex- again exclusive to tech. This idea of of um, sort of piecework is again not new. Um, and and there are some real issues. One of our other favorite words, I think, Nicholas, is agency, isn't it? There are some agency. There's some agency. Yes. <laughs> there's some really, really sort of profound questions about that sense of, you know, how much to the extent to which you feel you have agency, or you or others are playing you, uh, and you're utterly dependent on them. And and I think one of the the sort of um, very significant aspects of the gig economy is that lack of agency that you are sitting there. Uh, sort of waiting to be told when to come into work and what to do as opposed to having agency or, or control over it yourself. But as I say, the piecework piece isn't new. I think where, where it has become exaggerated with tech companies is that one of the things that tech companies like to do is uh, uh, to have a light footprint. Um, uh, in other words, to sort of contract out everything they possibly can. So we should look at it in the round. It's not just that, you know, an Uber 
uh, has sort of come from nowhere and said our model is to have you know workers who are not employed. Um, the idea is of an Uber or tech companies that, that they want to employ as few people as possible, just some software engineers typically, and then everything else is contracted out. So you'll contract out you know, pensions and all sorts of stuff that you can you can push out for, that a traditional business would have had in-house, a tech business will typically have uh, out uh, externally. Um, and so it's sort of, in a sense, it's, it's kind of a logical uh, follow-on from that model of, you know, a, a small number, typically of sort of highly technical employees at the centre, and then a large body of people providing contracted in services to, to sort of extend that even further to the actual service that you're delivering to the public. Well, it's not true for all tech companies, though. I mean, if you look at Amazon, it's interesting because Amazon has really uh, leaned into hiring hundreds of thousands of people and become a ginormous employer, not just in the US, but in, in Europe as well. So they seem to be taking a different approach, but but they're also... They're also dependent. Logistics is a, a, a core function in Amazon. What you describe are not core functions in, in tech companies. So many companies, and not just tech companies, I think if you go to your Procter & Gamble or if you go to, to your AstraZeneca, I think you will find that what is not core is usually, I mean, this is the outsourcing discussion that we've been yes. having since 1980s, essentially. And I, I think there is, there is uh, the... the the problem with that is that I think that tech companies are extraordinarily efficient at it, which means that they can measure everything and they can get the most out of it. Outsourcing that is a little bit lax at the edges is probably okay because it creates great jobs on the other side of the outsourcing. Outsourcing that sort of really measures everything uh, might just shave off those margins a bit and make those outsourced jobs a little, little bit less attractive, perhaps. Yeah, so, so I think it's, you're right. It is that the outsourcing, and and part of it, I think it's not actually necessarily about cost, but it's about flexibility. It's about a company saying, "Look, we're going to develop in this direction, and we think we'll need five thousand people to do it." But if if there are full time employees, particularly in you know countries around the world where employment rights are strong, and you decide to go in a different direction, you then, from a company point of view, are, are stuck. That's a horrible word, but you know, stuck with a whole bunch of employees who, who you no longer need. And so, of course, the outsourcing model would say, I'll stop that contract and move to a different uh, model. And it's not my responsibility. It's the responsibility of whoever employs those outsourced contractors. So in, in some cases, it can actually cost more money. But what you get for that additional money, at least from the company's perspective is an additional amount of flexibility uh, and if you look at um, uh, the models for content moderation something we have discussed on this podcast you, you'll find that a lot of companies use content moderation outsource providers because they suddenly have a need for you know 500 arabic speakers or a thousand turkish speakers or 300 russian speakers and they don't know how long they'll need uh, th those people to do that work and so in many cases, it may end up costing them more. It would be cheaper to hire the employees in uh, to the company. But if you hire them in and then your needs change next year, um, then let's say your, that responsibility falls on you with the outsource provider. Hopefully, uh, you know, if you don't need those 500 Turkish speakers, one of the other customers of the outsource provider will need them and so they can divert them to other work. So say, a lot of it, I think, is about the flexibility that it, at least yeah. people perceive they get from the outsourcing. And I think you, uh, you would probably get a rather strong argument from many of the politicians that we have met who would say that this is actually a core function of a platform. And in order yeah. to, to sort of think about this in the right way, you should hire these people and not outsource them because this is... And I think the companies, on the other hand, are coming 
at this from this we're doing this in response to political pressure it doesn't feel like a core function so sometimes it's really hard to know what a core function is and whether or not the core function of platforms is content moderation my suspicion would be given uh, and, and there is a specific set of workplace issues for the people who are employed in these sometimes gruesome jobs where they have to watch images and and sort of take um, take down content that is is horrible in many ways i think that the the overall trend my guess would be that more of these will be in-house in 10 years than today um, I, I think it'll be a co- combination of in-house and actually potentially quite a lot of automation which is the other thing obviously that yes, that's hanging yeah. over all of this that you know again from a from a i mean actually a human perspective uh, if you can use artificial intelligence systems or clever image matching to get rid of the worst of the worst and not have any human look at it then that feels like a much better outcome. And so, again, I think a lot of the companies are working towards that goal, which, again, drives them towards saying, well, we don't want to invest too much in hiring a bunch of people who we may be displacing ourselves through technology in a few years' time. Um, And so, again, that's, I think, a critical part of the calculation. And arguably, some of the transport providers who are also investing in self-driving vehicles, you can see there perhaps a similar dynamic going on where uh, they've got an eye to the future where they they perhaps don't need uh, employees as such. And it's it's an interesting it's an interesting observation. It's like you have this human transition period where you expect that you will need human work, but at the end of that, you expect to be able to automate a lot of that. So you you need to find a path to the point of automation, and that path is then you know hiring all of these people and then getting to the point of automation, and having to lay them off would be painful in so many different ways. And so you're right, there's a reticence that comes from the promise of automation in the future, not just automation happening now. Uh, And that reticence is not, you know, it's not in hiring people, it's rather in the forms in which you're hiring them, if you're outsourcing, or if you're, you're hiring as full time employees. Now, I want to get back to the question, you mentioned something that I think is, is really important earlier, where you said that, the question of work-life balance is essentially a question of our individual autonomy vis-a-vis our employers. The ability to sort of decide and uh, shape our own lives and our leisure time, our personal time, our family time in ways that are not impacted by an always-on mentality. And, and this autonomy this requirement of autonomy is, is uh, underlies a lot of thinking that is happening I think primarily right now in in Europe around how to regulate this how to how to sort of get to a stable state and there are two big models here it seems there's the French model and the German model can you walk us through what the French are doing so, so um, essentially they have created a, a legal right to disconnect, which essentially says there's part of the arrangement between an employer and an employee, they have to agree on on what the normal hours are within which people are going to communicate. And they they have to agree uh, that outside of those hours, the employee literally has a right uh, not to be communicated with and actually that the the employer potentially... um, gets into trouble if they uh, step outside of that agreement. I mean, it's sort of in sense is regarded as kind of abusive behavior for an employer um, to be uh, uh, seeking to connect with their employees outside of that agreed framework. Uh, and there's a, there's a set of rules around that and guidance and ways in which those agreements need to take place. But I say the, the heart of it is that notion, this is a right to disconnect, is saying um, 
uh, I mean, it's almost, a, it's, you can argue, say, right to disconnect, or it's a, a forbidding of, <laughs> of connection. So you flip it the other way around and say, so at one level, it's saying, you know, if you're a reasonable employer slash manager, um, th- then for you to step outside of something is almost kind of like harassing behavior or inappropriate sort of workplace behavior. And it's based on an assumption that, uh, uh, and again, this is interesting. We sort of tease this out of a sort of, in the sense of passive employee and an aggressive employer, <laughs> that the employer is trying to extract the maximum from this employee, and therefore you've got to redress the balance by by creating a, a sort of regulatory framework which which says, look, the employee potentially could seek action damages against their employer. Uh, if they did step out of line and engage in that that sort of almost harassing behavior, inappropriate workplace behavior by communicating when they should. No, it's a, it's a it's a model that goes back to Marx, right? The idea is that you are essentially extracting labor from your employees, and uh, the way you extract that needs to be regulated, or you are going to be tempted to over extract labor because that's in the nature of the employment relationship. There's a, and and the interesting thing is that when you contrast this with the German model, the Germans are instead uh, employing uh, self regulation between the social partners on the labor market. The idea being that you know instead of of regulating this, there are agreements between companies and labor unions that are essentially setting out the rules for disconnection. And uh, this is being driven to a large part by the employers with the motivation that they don't believe in working all day round. They believe in efficiency. So we go to sort of our cultural um, our cultural stereotypes here, right? We have the, the Germans who are saying, of course, you have a right to di- disconnect. You just need to work efficiently. And if you work efficiently, you should be able to... And this is from a paper I read about this that I thought was hilarious. It was by a guy called Paul Secunda who wrote that the Germans essentially are subscribing to the theory of work hard, play hard. Yes. So rather than work 24 hours a day, uh, which is the US theory, he, he asserted... Um, and so in Germany, it's a self-regulatory model between the social partners of the market, driven by a sense that if you're working nonstop and if you're not disconnecting, then you're not working in the right way and you're not efficient. I thought that was really interesting. and sort of a contrast between approaches. Both seem to lead to the same conclusion, that there should be this this right to disconnect, but they're motivated in a power relationship in France and in an efficiency framework uh, in Germany. Again, according to, to Paul Zucker, I do, I do think he has a point there. I don't know what you think. Yeah, the stereotyping I, is dangerous. It but is dangerous. <laughs> um, but I think the Irish uh, have gone for something similar to the German model in the sense it's, it's sort of guidelines and agreement. So I think we a lot of countries are interested and we will get this spectrum and it, although it's stereotyping, but it will, I mean, we we see it in other areas. There's no reason to think this will be different from the the sort of you know um, health and safety guidance type approach, which arguably is more uh, uh, common in what they normally call the Anglo-Saxon countries, but it's sort of Nordic and uh, UK, Ireland type countries where you tend to sort of have a more of a guidance-led approach. In Germany, yes, you know, a lot of their workplace regulation is done through this um, uh, uh, sort of agreement between all of the stakeholders model. Uh, much more common, the Works Council agrees something type model. And in France, in other areas as well, things like working time in other areas, again, much more common, there'll be formal regulation. Um, so I think we'll we'll see this sort of follow the route that other 
areas of, of workplace rules uh, uh, follow. But you're right, the common thread in all of them it is a desire not to just ignore this, not just to leave it um, as entirely a matter for each company to sort out for themselves, but to establish norms. And those norms, I say, will be expressed differently in each country, but the norm they're trying to establish is um, uh, that, that uh, there are limits to the number of hours on which somebody should be on duty and that they shouldn't have to respond. It's often focused very, very specifically on email. And actually some of the rules are, you know, you must reconfigure your email services so they don't send uh, emails out at certain times. When you get into a real rule-based system, it's like you've got to go into your, typically your Microsoft Exchange server and and kind of configure it so that it, it stores all the messages and doesn't send them on to individual recipients between such and such an hour and such and such an hour. I mean, you can you can really sort of get into the fine grade detail. But the notion of all of it is, yes, that um, uh, very commonly you should not be emailing, messaging, calling people for a certain number of hours each day uh, to be decided within each business. But that's really at the heart of it. And I think, I think a lot of countries are going to end up precisely in that space where either through formal law or through some kind of guidance, they're trying to create these new norms. And and as they do so, they're sort of reintroducing the friction of the old office where you didn't have access to any of your work resources, etc. And and you've said this a couple of times now. You talked about the hours we work, the working hours and 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 time. But is that really the nature of modern work, though? The, that we're talking about hours. I think I think there are two things going on here. One is work, which I think is is less and less well measured by time, and the other is accessibility where you're turned into this resource that I can request things from or that I can ask things or that I can ping things. And and, and, and there's it's interesting because I think most people like the ability to plan their work and perhaps take two days, two, two hours off in, in the workday and go off and do something because they can complete their work task in the afternoon. So it's not so much about regulating working hours as regulating this new thing that has happened, which is that that there's this accessibility, there's this... You, you've become a resource in some way. I mean, Heidegger would have a field day with this because yeah. he's saying that technology turns us all into resources. It turns a forest into wood. And this is essentially now happening with people. You're turning people into to sort of pingable resources. <laughs> so I can ping you every every hour if I want to. And, and that has done something to you. But it's, it, it isn't exactly about work, is it? No. So, so a lot, I think, is um, about the volume and type of tasks that you're being asked to do. So again, I think you know, very privileged people like yourself and myself are, are, are at the one end of the spectrum where essentially your your job, in a sense, is a vocation. You're dedicated to it. You find it interesting, I say, and and you you kind of uh, live within that work environment where you don't feel particularly put upon when new stuff comes in. In fact, you can feel quite excited. I'm needed. Off I go. I'm going to kind of charge out and try and resolve this issue. And we should be really candid. There is there are a certain number of workers <laughs> who are lucky enough to be in that place most of the time. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to pretend I wasn't. Um, there's another group of workers who, where it's task focused and they do like that flexibility. So again, your, your sort of classic, I don't know, self-employed electrician, who is given a job with a price and the job is to come and fit 20 electrical sockets in a house and they're going to get that money to do those 20 electrical sockets and it's from their point of view a fair price 
And if they choose to do that late in the evening or on a Saturday morning or in the middle of the day, kind of it's nice for them to have that flexibility because they're going to get paid the right amount for the right job. But then there's a much bigger bucket of workers, and this is where I think the real concern is, where um, essentially the, t- the tasks are, they're not being paid per task. It's not, you know, um, work that they're necessarily sort of choosing to do for fun. It is hard grind. And then the, the fear is that by extending the amount of time you're asking for them, essentially you're devaluing their work. So if you're paying them for five hours, um, as an employer, that you're trying to extract effectively seven hours of work out of them while still paying them five, that's where I think you hit the real problem. That's where there is a real unfairness. Um, and as I say, that can happen where the tasks aren't clearly defined uh, and they're not getting paid per task. And if they're not getting paid per hour, so in, in the old model, you know, you were if you were paid nine to five, you turned up the office nine to five, that was fair. You left, you switched off, you were getting paid your eight hours. Um, uh, now, if you leave the office at five and you're getting pinged at six and seven and eight in the evening, but you're still getting paid for the nine to five, arguably you're being paid less. Your work has been devalued because now you're working more hours uh, to do the same amount of work. And I think underlying that is is a, a view, and this, this sort of may reflect as well the times that we're in, that um, I, I think more and more employers uh, have sort of more work on than their employees can possibly deliver. And they're not hiring up. So again, in the old world, where everyone was in these sort of fixed workplaces, if you want to take on more work, you hired more employees. The perception today is that you you take on more work, but you try and stretch your existing employees to cover it. Um, so again, you end up in this situation where people are doing more work for the same money. And that, I think, is at the heart of these complaints and the heart of this sort of notion of right to switch off, that, that there is an unfairness in expecting people to do more work for less money. Uh, uh, and that happens where this working day is extended uh, beyond where it used to be, um, but there's no additional pay given. Yeah, I, I I like that. I think that's right. And it makes me think that uh, many years ago I read about... So Hannah Arendt has this interesting distinction in her work. She speaks about uh, labor, which is funkable and sort of what you just mentioned. It's non-task specific. It's just you grind and you work. And then she had work, which was completed tasks, where you where you do something that ends up being something. It can be artistic work, but it can also be uh, carpentry, which is artistic, I suppose, and and other things. But it has sort of a task defined. And then there's action. Action is where where sort of your life and your work they melt together, and what you're doing is essentially shaping your world around you. And I I think one of the things that has happened is that it's become much worse to be in the lowest Hannah Arendt category labor because labor can be drawn upon by multiple different channels all the time so that's where the the protective need is the greatest but for people who still have the ability to engage in work or even better in in action are privileged to do that this may not be as much of a thing uh, for them but but i do think i mean but maybe that's wrong maybe maybe the yeah maybe that's wrong because i think that the other question here is how should we relate to work? Um, should should we? What is the if we can work all day round? If we can be accessible all day round? How did you deal with this on a personal level as a manager? What was your philosophy when you talked to your teams? Yeah, so, so I mean, you need to be um, careful, and you need a lot of sort of clear communication. Now, again, this may be part of how how this is addressed. So, for example. 
um, if you're like me, the kind of person who needs to email something as soon as they think of it, not because you want someone to do anything about it, but because otherwise you're going to forget. Again, you need to establish explicit norms that say, uh, I'm going to send you the email, um, but but uh, you can ignore it. Or, I mean, that's one way of doing it. Or if the person you're sending it to, though, is the kind of conscientious person who doesn't feel comfortable ignoring it, again, you need to surface that and say, look, you know, you sending it to me, even when you write, don't do anything about this. You've actually disturbed my evening because now I'm worrying about it. I can't, I can't, like, I can't ignore it as the recipient. So, so I say, for me, the critical thing is that communication. It's understanding between people who are working together um, on what basis they're communicating with each other. What's, how do they uh, individually react to different forms of communication? Um, and, and as I say, I think a lot, a lot of issues can be resolved by those direct communications between managers and, and people in their teams. Um, but they involve compromises. So again, you know, my position, I may be the kind of person that likes to fire the thing off by email. I may get frustrated if I can't. Um, but a compromise for an employee who doesn't like those emails sitting in their inbox is for me to hold back, uh, to stick it in my drafts folder. Uh, and risk the fact that I'll forget to send it the next day. But that's that's the kind of compromise that you sometimes need to reach. So really honest, open communication about how you are each experiencing uh, different work patterns, I think, is the key to, to uh, certainly at a micro level within a team, being able to address this. And trying to also figure out where where you're falling for that trap of fake urgency that so often happens in organizations of all sizes, I think, where you where you sort of, oh, this has to be done now, and you email somebody on a Saturday, although it doesn't really have to be done on a Saturday. And it's it's interesting because the pace, the general pace uh, of society is speeding up so much that, that we, we end up uh, feeling urgency, almost like a, a background noise. And so so that's, we end up expecting responses very quickly. We end up sending emails. I, I, I started to use very late in my career this no, this function within Gmail that allows you to delay sending of the email, um, which I think is a, a good tip. If you're using Gmail, and obviously you should, this is not a plug <laughs> from my former employer. Uh, if you're using Gmail uh, or any other email service, I think most have it now, uh, it's actually possible to delay your emails over the weekend and, and actively design your work patterns, not just sort of uh, lay them out and accept them, but design them to to set an example. I think it's, it's really hard because... Uh, but but it's 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 a trap, and I think most people fall into this that the, you you say you don't have to read the email, but then you're working with tremendously helpful, conscientious people who are sort of like, yeah. oh, I know, I don't absolutely, and here's the response. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, and it, I remember this happening many times. I did exactly like you described, and and after a while, sort of just started not to send the emails because nobody would 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 sort of adapt to this notion that you can look at it Monday. <laughs> yeah. But also if, if you've, um, if you've written, you know, you had to read five paragraphs explaining about this really serious problem before you get to the closing line, which says no need to respond to this. The damage is done because <laughs> your head is yes. full of this problem and it's going to haunt you, you know, uh, for the rest of the weekend. So I mean, one thing that I find interesting because we've talked about it for years and, and I go all the way back before I worked at Facebook, I used to work at Cisco and uh, Cisco had used to talk about unified communications and people being able to express their communications preferences. And again, remarkably, I think underdeveloped 
um, as a, as a as a sort of model for people organizing work. So so which channels do you prefer? When do you prefer them? You know, these are really quite important questions. I, I, one thing I have as a personal habit is I prefer voice telephony as a channel for a lot of things because I find it really annoying. Amen to that. <laughs> having said emails back and forth, particularly if you, you have three or four questions, hey, what, you know, what, when's this thing happening? Da, 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 the email back telling you when it's happening. Okay, who's going to go to email? But, you know, we could be six emails <laughs> in before you got the information that I could have got in a one-minute phone call. <laughs> Um, so I would phone people up, but they would freak out because from their perspective, the phone was the thing you picked up, you know, when some serious, urgent tragedy has happened. And, and from their point of view, it is different. Um, instant messaging now on the scene, you know, again, I think uh, for a lot of us, you find that you start for anything important, you start ignoring email and instant messaging, or you send an instant message going, please look at your email that I just sent. <laughs> you know? but, uh, again, we need to surface all of this and understand you know, what the rules of engagement are. And, and there isn't a single pattern. Um, some organizations could be, you know, we want everything on email for all sorts of reasons. We want it to be documented for legal purposes. We want to go a little bit slower. Other organizations could be like, you know, get the hell off email, you know, unless you're sending some formal document and please do everything on instant messenger. And other organizations, again, if I was running one, would be much more pick up the phone and talk to each other. Um, but let's let's get all that uh, out, I think, is, is a really important um, step that is missing a lot of organizations where people are, we can imagine them sending endless chains of emails complaining about how people are using email and nobody ever sitting down and talking about it. <laughs> I think this happens a lot, and I think I think it I think it's interesting because in many ways what we have done is also that we have intellectualized work, so more and more work is knowledge work, um, but we still think in communication as if we're sending physical things back and forth, and we're looking at working hours as we said before. One of the things you said uh, just now, the the notion of sort of this sitting in your head, I think is so important because a, a lot of the work that we do is about how we allocate our attention. And I think this is true for, for most knowledge workers, which means that if you send a Friday afternoon email about a enormous problem and saying, but don't worry about it over the weekend, it's impossible yeah. not to worry about it over the weekend. So in a sense, work has become more and more about how we allocate our attention and how we allocate the attention of the people working with us. And it's, it's, uh, it is much, much harder than than telling somebody to disconnect when they're when they're going home from a bookstore that they worked in or uh, if they sort of worked with something uh, much more hands-on so I, I there's a there's there's inherent I think in modern work this problem as well um, and it's it's going to get worse before it gets better because the the reply to it seems to be to to build more and more tools and those tools absorb more and more attention. And I, I was fascinated to see that there are now, there are now companies who are talking about looking at Zoom statistics or Microsoft yeah. Teams statistics to get a sense for how many people are actually working and how much are they working and how much has this person been on Zoom and what are they doing if they're not on Zoom. The, the, the need for control that some employers obviously have, and it might be very legitimate, um, is is turning to analytics. So you're getting like people analytics, which is one of these words that I don't really understand, but seems to be very, um, uh, very uh, popular nowadays. And that, in turn, I think will uh, bring us to our next topic, which is workplace privacy. What do yes. you think will happen with workplace privacy in the coming years? 
I mean, this is an area where there is regulation and, and there have been uh, a number of different court cases taking place, but it's still an evolving area. So I, th- I think we we have a very good notion of, you know, surveillance law um, and privacy in the purely private domain. So when I am sitting at home and I pick up my telephone to call you, Nicholas, um, you know, the rules around who can intercept that call and why they can intercept it are very, very strict indeed. And there's very important thresholds. And if if any sort of um, person tried to kind of intercept that private call, uh, my employer or anyone else, that would be a, a really big deal, a criminal offense. Um, uh, similarly, you know, when I'm engaging with the company, if, if uh, uh, a, a service that I'm using is monitoring my activity as part of that service provision, that may be possible, but it's all going to be covered by GDPR in Europe, the case of Europe or by other privacy rules, California Privacy Act, etc. So there's a really robust framework there. Workplaces tend to be treated differently, and, and there's good reasons for that. But I don't think we've we've really bottomed out how far they should be, uh, uh, or workplace privacy rights should be afforded. So, for example, a private telephony system, or sort of one operated within a workplace. Um, somebody else listening in on call. We all experience it every time you ring a customer service agent. It says this call may be recorded for quality and training purposes. You know, if if somebody's on a work phone, particularly in a call center, like it's the norm that somebody can listen in at any point and record that call. So the opposite of uh, domestic kind of privacy expectations. But what if it's not a call center? What if it's a general workplace telephony system? At what point? You know, what's the threshold at which it would be okay to listen in uh, to one of your employees' phone calls if they're using a work phone. Important question. To what extent is it reasonable to look at the emails they're sending if they're using uh, a workplace email system? And again, most of us, I'm sure I, I did, I'm sure all of us did, you end up just for convenience using your workplace email system often for it could be quite sensitive things your medical appointments or you know uh, financial transactions you're doing. Um, uh, I don't know if anyone listening to this is pure enough to say they never ever did that with a work uh, a workplace email system, but as I say, certainly not. Um, so, certainly so I say we, we all end up doing that. No, uh, you know, um, at the same time, if your employer thought that you were emailing out the company's secret source code uh, to another company, I think most of us would say, well, it's reasonable then for them to to look at it, but it's not reasonable for them to start looking at my private medical appointments. Um, so all of this stuff, I think, needs to be uh, addressed. So we, we do have legal frameworks that um, are relevant here. Uh, and, and certainly in Europe, uh, as I say, there are these, there are a number of cases that people have taken where it could be the uh, employee complaining about workplace surveillance, or it could be an employer um, sort of complaining that they're not able to do it. I, either party could be taking the, these cases forward. Um, but I don't think by any means it's settled. And again, I think this transition from a a relative minority of people in in a limited set of functions being the always-on people to many, many more people being always-on and using these communications methods, I think is going to raise these questions uh, or push them way up the agenda. There's just a lot more scope now for potential disputes where an employer does something that's inappropriate. Some of the things you mentioned, like you know, surveilling the, the number of hours people are connected using different systems. 
again, I don't, I don't think employers like the Facebooks and Googles were doing that particularly. They might have been doing some of this um, uh, workplace investigation where they thought they had a serious problem and they were trying to investigate a leak or something. But I'm not aware that they were ever looking at you know how many hours were you on your uh, different e- you know, email system, things like that. But as you move into a lot more jobs taking place online and you may get employers who are who are sus- suspicious that employees are claiming pay but not doing the work that they're being paid for, there, you know, the employer is going to say, look, I, I think it's reasonable that I can do a certain amount of data collection uh, because I, I feel I'm being cheated uh, and therefore I need to have the ability to investigate that. But again, what are the criteria? What's the threshold you've got to pass before that's reasonable? Is it reasonable for an employer to keep a log of, hours connected of all of their employees all the time or is it only reasonable for an employer to do that where there are specific concerns that they can demonstrate this is all the stuff i think that now will will get worked out either under existing legislation or maybe there will be new legislation that has to come into place in order to do this and because more and more people are working remotely and more and more people are now in situations where 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 you know they will have a camera paid for by the company uh, that is in their home and sometimes will catch family members as they walk across the background and and it's going to i think be this mix of home and workplace the dissolution of the workplace into many different places is i think that's going to present an enormous challenge for uh, not so much for the legislation i think the legislation probably knows how to deal with this and and it's very uniformly saying that the rights of the individual come first, but it, it's going to be hard for companies to find ways in which they negotiate the new normal. And uh, and it's 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 interesting the way one of the ways in which this happened uh, tech companies and and I don't know if you had this but but we had uh, this um, entire department that did what they called people analytics, and so what they did was essentially looking not at any individual Googler but at all Googlers. And the idea was just to find out, you know, how are people doing? What are they eating? How can we sort of devise a healthier, more um, interesting environment for them, etc. And 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 you you were sort of living in this giant social engineering project, which I quite liked because I thought it was very it was very funny. And and you would find these things, they do small changes in your environment to sort of test things. And one of the things they did was that they put all of the really unhealthy candy at the bottom of the the micro chicken, uh, we uh, micro kitchen, sorry, not micro chicken, micro, micro chicken, kitchen, yeah. micro kitchen uh, uh, shelves. So they would put all of the really unhealthy candy. I mean, we were so spoiled. We had free candy, etc. But so th- there were lots of small things like that. And I think I think this will catch on, and that there will be like a group privacy problem. Is you know, as an employee, should you even if it's aggregated data, um, be open to be a part of an analytics project like that. And, I, and I, it brought a bit of, of, of sabotage. I mean, I was involved in, a, in a, a small group who did microsocial sabotage and put the good candy on top because we thought people should have access to that. And, and at one point, we shifted out the decaf and the, the calf uh, espressos as well, which led to a really interesting work environment. But, but <laughs> you know, there's, there's sort of that you resist. And when you resist, there's something happening there. There's something with the power. There's something with the relationship. And I thought it was really interesting that it came mostly when you see people engaged in this micro social sabotage resistance actions it was it was related to to what i think was mostly benign and certainly well-intentioned uh people analytics ideas did you have that was that something you did 
I'm not aware that I was ever A-B tested for different forms of candy, but I may have been and just not known about it. it ah, there you go. Yeah, that would be the super sneaky version. But I think what's going to happen with those kind of things is, again, in line with the general principles of data protection and privacy law, that that the employer, I think, is not going to be able to just assert that they're doing monitoring in the best interest of the employees and that's it, that you know they obviously know what's best. I think they're going to have to much more clearly demonstrate that's what they're doing. And again, that's a general principle of if you're using uh, data, um, then 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 you've got to prove or, or you've got to be able to demonstrate that it truly is in the interest of, or you're doing it in the interest of the people that, whose data you're collecting. Uh, you're not doing it arbitrarily. But again, we're back to this question. You know, in my in my employment contract, you know, what am I signing? <laughs> Am I? Yeah. Uh, and again, are those terms fair? Have I signed away? I mean, if, if I sign the employment contract to work in a call center, I am signing something that says I give my employer the right to listen in on all of my phone calls when I'm at work on the work phone. And now you're right. That right is being extended to the call center worker who's working from their own home, uh, which is a sort of novel aspect of that. But it's in the contract you've agreed to that. So I think that a lot of things that may have been implicit before kind of trust me, I'm the employer, I'm collecting this data for good reasons, may have to be much more explicit uh, and much more sort of clearly consented to uh, by people within the workplace. I find I find when I think about this that I am probably on the German employer side. Uh, this might be because I'm Swedish and Swedes tend to do whatever the Germans tell us. But I think I think that sort of the reality is that I, I really like this idea that and that the driving the driving vision here should be what is work how do we think about work and should we not be working effectively and then spend time uh, our leisure time with other things and that as an employer i would really like to have those workers who who can get the job done and then can relax because i know that over time they will be much more efficient so if it's through the social partners agreeing with trade unions or employers associations or if it's through regulation as in the french model it, this this seems to be to be a really interesting solution so let's assume for a second that we're fast forward five years we have european directive on the right to disconnect and this is something that it would be a bit of a revolution because it would mean that the european union had a mandate to walk into labor law in a way that it hasn't been able to do but maybe it's connected with privacy maybe an expansion maybe maybe some kind of agreement or code of conduct if that were the case we have a right to disconnect and it's negotiated between employers and employees would you think it is a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think the problems are, the challenges are? Yeah, I mean, I, I could actually see it becoming an EU thing because it could potentially be a single market issue that those those countries who are extracting every inch of their employees' time by not giving them the right to disconnect have got an unfair competitive advantage over the others. And so, like with working time directive, you need to intervene. So it's possible. Um, I, I. Personally, I think I'm probably with you in the sense of liking the German model. I, I think it should be by agreement because I think the, the most important thing is a conversation about workload, work allocation. You were right about attention, where you want people's attention to focus. Yeah. And, and in a sense, um, you know, the, a, a badly managed organization is going to be the one that follows the sort of exploitative model. And again, let's keep going back to that. The, the, the thing that we are most concerned about is a bad employer underpaying its workers by getting them yeah. to work more hours 
than they really want to pay them for. And that's, uh, for me, it sort of really all boils down to that. We should be really sort of crisp about that. Uh, um, and a good employer will not do that, and a good employer would agree. And it may, and it may be, again, old-fashioned notions of things like overtime. It may be that you don't want the right to disconnect necessarily. Sometimes you will want the right to disconnect. At other times, you want the right to be paid when you do connect. And so, so your solution, in you know, you might not want. Uh, and again, we had this discussion over the working time directive. You may, within your uh, employment sphere, not want to be told that that you have to disconnect at six in the evening. You may want to be given the right to insist that when you're called on the phone at seven, you can charge time and a half or double time, <laughs> old school sort of overtime. So, but that's going to be teased out if you have these conversations between employment employers and others. Um, where you, where I think you you know you might want regulation as I say as a floor, which says for those I think minority of employers who simply are seeking to abuse their workforce, uh, there we need a regulatory flaw that says at that point, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the employee has some ability to go to some kind of tribunal and flag that an abuse is taking place and the abuse being that they're being asked to work unreasonable hours uh, or being asked to work additional hours for which they're not receiving any kind of compensation. Um, and again, a lot of employment law is framed around that. It's framed around you know, pe- people sort of uh, behaving in an unreasonable and abusive way. Um, so, yeah. for example, we talked earlier about, you know, a lot of the gig economy laws, certainly in the UK and I think in other countries, they're all around what they call disguised employment, that, that somebody, you know, is effectively an employee, but you just don't want to pay them holiday pay and you don't want to pay them sick pay. Uh, and so, you know, you're cheating the system. Um, but you look at the nature of their work and their work it looks like the work of any other employee and therefore should be treated the same. So again, some of the hours that you're working uh, away from the normal hours when you're sitting, reading email, responding to email, or even worrying about the email that you've been sent, uh, you know, that is kind of di- disguised overtime, <laughs> frame it that way. And you should be getting paid for your disguised overtime, just like you should be given employee rights if it's disguised employment. Mm. Yes, and 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 it's it's interesting. I I do think there are risks, though. I mean, to to the question of what could go wrong, there is. If you look at the French legislation, it is only applicable to organizations that are above fifty people. Yeah. So you could imagine a world in which you get a lot of small outsourced companies that are forty nine people, where there is absolutely no rights to disconnect, and where you get this kind of abuse. So I think that's why I like the agreement model, the German model, better than the French, because regulation always have has these second order effects, these unintended consequences that that create weird um, weird distortions of the labor market. So there's something to be said for for the for the German model also being driven at least to some extent by by the by the companies. I, I, I another thing about the German model that I thought was really funny was that uh, the strictest agreement uh, it's charter for its employees that give them the right to disconnect is the German Ministry of Labor. Yeah. So they have put out this sort of agreement for all. So they've sort of they've led by example, which I, I really like. I think there is something about that, and and that's that's a way of of norming of of sort of creating the norms for for a market that that is is kind of uh, attractive. I do think that we'll get much more of this, and I think we'll have much more remote work in the future. And so I think that both the question of, I mean, it was always be interesting to to sort of turn it around and say, 
you know, how much leisure time uh, is it that you should you have a right to? What's your right to leisure? That's the sort of the rather than the right to disconnect, which sort of makes work the central piece of your life. You could talk about this right to leisure. And yeah. uh, leisure time is severely underestimated. I think we we tend to think of it as time when we're not working, but that's not it. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, for example, a lot of people wrote about leisure time as the time when you cultivate yourself. Or Justice Brandeis used to say that leisure time is when you're a citizen. That's when you're sort of participating in society and building democracy and devoting attention to the institutions that make up your liberty. That's sort of that's leisure time. So that means that politicians and, are permanently enjoying leisure time well I, i'm sort of of the opinion that they are and I, you would know better but <laughs> yeah. Well, <so laughs> but, that, but yeah the house of lords when when they're having a little break on the screen is, it says that the house is adjourned during pleasure so i think we've we've got that uh that down to a t we adjourn, you know all of perfect our... perfect i i, yeah. sh- I should have known that the house of lords <laughs> has got the right framing of this but but there is there is that thing too that i think is is even more important we again we we talked about this before when we talked about misinformation. We're approaching technology from its disadvantages rather than looking at the values that we would like to protect, the values that we think are fundamental to democracy and perhaps to us as human beings. And if we were to start with those values, with the value of leisure time, we might get to a very different place and we might actually be able to address this not by saying, you know, we will configure your Microsoft Exchange server, but by saying, here is your quarter of time and you do with it what you will. And it doesn't matter. This is what's protected. Yeah. And, and th- th- there's just something about that recurrent theme where we're reacting to technology again and again. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, t- in terms of the, the opportunities, again, we're at the threshold potentially of something very exciting where previously for a lot of jobs, people were, you know, sh- schlepping miles on a tedious commute going to an office that was not particularly lovely and didn't have all the snack bars that the Google offices had, you know, it's just... Uh, if you have, to be honest, yeah, yes. You know, <laughs> uh, eating, eating a sort of expensive and not very nutritious lunch from wherever they can, you know, get food nearby and then schlepping home again. And now uh, uh, they may be kayaking uh, to work or uh, sitting in some beautiful place. Um, and, and that opportunity is actually extended to a lot more workers. And again, call center workers would be the classic example of where... Uh, uh, now the ability to operate as a call center worker from home, if that can be done in well, in a good framework, may lead to a much higher quality of life for that individual uh, and much better, for example, division of home and family responsibilities than when they were having to commute into a physical uh, call center. And those are not sort of highly paid executive jobs are a much more uh, a sort of standard uh, salary rate job. So, So there are these opportunities now, I think, for... Uh, dramatically increased both sort of family opportunities and leisure opportunities that can be combined with work simply by breaking the geographical link between the job being done and the place where you need to be in order to do that work. I'm also a super god. I mean, UK is a prime example that so many jobs were London only. You know, if you wanted to get on yeah. in life, you could you had to do it in London. And now a lot of those employers will be hiring people in in other more beautiful parts of the country where where people want to live. You know, people people would be leaving family, leisure, the lifestyles they liked, and moving to more cramped accommodation in a more stressful environment just because they had to in order to get these jobs. And if if we break that link again, potentially the technology is is super positive as an enabler. Um, 
if we can get this right. So we get back to your message. Let's let's look at the opportunities uh, as well as the downsides in order to get the full picture. Yes. Well, I think that's an excellent note to end on. How are you disconnecting this weekend? Uh, this week, actually, so I I um, have to stay connected. This is the other bane of our lives. We're all talk about this, which is which is delivery. <laughs> uh, as pe- people who are friends of mine will know, I'm, I've been working on on uh, uh, fixing up my house. When you fix up your house, you need to get a lot of stuff delivered. When you get stuff delivered, and again, I assume other countries are the same, it's like the messages, the message telling you the day the delivery is happening, the message saying the time slot during which it's happening, and you've got to be there, and you've got to be like super connected all of the time. And the, the time slot is between nine and the four in the afternoon. And it's sort of <laughs> we may call you an hour before, and if we don't get hold of you, the delivery is not going to happen. And then the whole, yeah. So, so um, actually, that would be a, a bit of technology I would love is the thing if I could figure this out, the thing that um, moves all the work stuff off uh, to, to, and again, we should have separate devices, but it moves all the work stuff yeah. off or the stuff I don't want to one place. And then the genuinely urgent stuff, which is the delivery of the new fridge freezer that I need to get into my house. <laughs> only that stuff comes through uh, on a particular communication channel. But again, if people have got, uh, the solutions are there technically, it's not a technology thing, human level, I think very few of us have managed to disaggregate effectively. So, well, best wishes for the for the delivery, <laughs> and I hope that works out well. And if you have thoughts or ideas or anything, please get in touch with us. And you can find this podcast at Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you so much, and tune in next week for a new episode of Regulate the Tech. <laughs>